Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. An alleged Chinese government spy operation in the middle of Manhattan, and that's just the start of it. The lead starts right now. Chinese dissidents in the U.S. harassed and intimidated from online to door knocks. The FBI says Chinese government agents were trying to silence their words against the Chinese government, even operating a fake cop shop in New York. Plus, outrage in Kansas City as if after a black teenage boy is shot after showing up at the wrong house to pick up his brothers, CNN is learning that the gunman was an elderly white man and was released After less than two hours in custody, why critics fear he may never be charged with a crime. And live from New York, it's the House GOP. There's spotlight on crime in New York today in the backyard of the prosecutor who indicted Donald Trump. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. In what appears to be a brazen act of espionage by the Chinese government as U.S. tensions With that country boil over, the U.S. Justice Department announced today three cases suggesting Chinese government agents spied on U.S. soil. Two suspected spies, American citizens, were arrested today for operating a, quote, undeclared police station in Manhattan. Both men, U.S. citizens who apparently destroyed evidence when confronted by the FBI, are set to appear in a federal court soon. U.S. officials say They operated an illegal Chinese police outpost in the Chinatown area of New York City that was apparently used to harass Chinese dissidents living in the United States on behalf of the Chinese government. In another case, Chinese security officials apparently eavesdropped on Zoom calls in the United States in order to harass Chinese dissidents who were on the calls. They disrupted the calls. They had a spy inside Zoom's corporate operations, allegedly. All this is high-stakes diplomatic tensions between the U.S. and China are reaching a boiling point over the Chinese spy balloon flying over the U.S., data privacy concerns about TikTok, China's increasingly cozy relationship with Russia, and China's continued provocation of Taiwan, to name just a few. Let's get right to CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. And Evan, prosecutors claim the Chinese government had something of an operative inside the company of Zoom? That's right, uh, Jake. In all, uh, over 40 people were named in these uh, set of charges that were announced today. Eight of them had to do with this operation, which which was essentially uh, orchestrating with someone who worked at Zoom uh, to try to disrupt uh, chats and, and calls that were being held by dissidents. Anything that was critical of the Chinese government, things like mentioning Tiananmen Square, for instance, which is forbidden to talk about in China, they would disrupt those calls, they would end those phone calls, and they would also try to uh, essentially uh, make sure that the accounts were shut down so the dissidents had a hard time doing Zoom calls to discuss things that were critical of, of the Chinese government. One of the other cases that were announced, was, was announced today uh, is this police, uh, uh, fake police station operation that you just mentioned. Uh, in this case, two 
U.S. citizens uh, were arrested today. They're appearing in court as we speak. Uh, they were uh, associated with a, with a nonprofit that was operating a, a police station for the Fuzhou Municipal Police Authority. Now, ostensibly, what, this, what they were trying to do, which was to, for people to be able to renew their driver's licenses or to do things that the municipal government needed for back in China. Instead, what uh, the FBI says uh, they were doing was they were using the police station to go out and harass dissidents. They would show up at, at uh, Falun Gong protests, for instance, and harass people there. They door knock people around the country to try to get dissidents to go back to China, where they would then, of course, face uh, Chinese authorities. So the FBI has been worried about this for a long time. What have they been doing in the interim? Well, we've uh, been talking to uh, counterintelligence uh, officials who've been very worried about this, Jake. They managed to get their uh, eyes on some of these uh, people who were operating these police stations, which was, by the way, not just in New York. It was around the country, and they managed to get them to, to be shut down. Uh, they've also passed this information to other countries. We've seen a- action taken in other countries recently to try to shut down uh, similar police stations that were operating there, again, to harass dissidents. And so we know that the FBI has been on this for some time, and it's just now we're, we're finally seeing these criminal cases being brought. Just shocking. Uh, very brazen. Brazen. Perez, thanks so much. Here to discuss Democratic Congressman Seth Moulton of Massachusetts. He's on the House Select Committee on China. He's also a Marine veteran. Uh, Congressman, good to see you. Are, are there any more of these police stations set up in the U.S. that are essentially operating on behalf of the Chinese government to harass people here in the U.S. who are, who are dissidents or who, who are critical of the Chinese government? Yes, my understanding is that there are. And it's really, I mean, just step back from this for a second, Jake. This is absolutely absurd that the Chinese Communist Party thinks that they can set up their own police station in a place like New York City. I mean, imagine you or I taking our families on vacation in a foreign country and getting harassed by the FBI, being tracked for what we're saying or what we're doing in a foreign country on vacation. You know, the heroes of this story, of course, are the Chinese dissidents, these Chinese Americans who actually have the courage to speak out against the Chinese Communist Party and their authoritarian regime, and they're getting harassed just for being American citizens and exercising their freedoms. Well, that's what's so remarkable about this is what a brittle spirit Xi Jinping has. He, He can't even take somebody, a few people, a few dissidents on a Zoom call criticizing him or mentioning Tiananmen Square and the oppression of student activists there decades ago. Um, This does really seem like an escalation by the Chinese government, don't you think? It's absolutely an escalation. And of course, they're escalating tensions all over the globe. They're escalating tensions right here at home in America. They're escalating tensions over Taiwan. Let's not forget, Xi Jinping has threatened to invade Taiwan. He said very explicitly, much like Putin did in the lead up to the Ukraine war, that he intends to take over uh, democratic Taiwan. And so the story out there that the Americans and Chinese are ratcheting up tensions is really not accurate. This is China ratcheting up tensions. This is the Chinese Communist Party uh, trying to exact their oppressive regime all over the globe. Do you think the U.S. government even has... uh a real handle and knows the full scope uh, of the degree to which the Chinese government is operating inside the United States. You know, we met with the FBI recently uh, as part of the China Select Committee, and they gave us a briefing, but it wasn't in the level of detail, frankly, that I expected. So I think we have some work to do to better understand this. We've heard about these police stations existing for a while, 
and I'm frankly shocked that it's taken us this long to take them out. I think that we need to take a much harder line against this because, again, when you step back from it, from this situation, step back from the details and just the idea that the Chinese Communist Party thinks they can have a police station in America is, is totally absurd and we've got to put a stop to it. So these two individuals, these American citizens, have now been charged with, with spying on behalf of the Chinese government. Um, and also there have been uh, punishments on, on Chinese officials in China. Um, but do you think there more needs to be done? I mean, what's the deal with this guy that was operating inside Zoom? Has he been charged? Not, not that we understand yet, although I certainly expect him to be. Uh, but look, this is, this is the story with Xi Jinping and his authoritarian regime. You can't walk down a street in China right now without encountering multiple surveillance cameras. It's truly extraordinary how scared he is. I mean, for, for someone who says that China is going to be the next lone superpower of the world, he's deathly afraid of his own people. And this does not bode well uh, for our future relations with China. Uh, it doesn't bode well for just being a Chinese citizen. And that's one of the points we have to remember is that the Chinese uh, citizens are really the victims here. In this case, Chinese Americans. Uh, but this is going on every single day in China as well. Xi Jinping is afraid of his own people. And now he's taking it out on even, the, even American citizens overseas. Yeah, that's so important for people out there to understand. The Chinese government are the bad guys, but, but the Chinese people are the victims. Um, right. I just keep thinking, when I think about uh, this group of Chinese spies and government agents stopping, disrupting Zoom calls where people are talking and being critical, I, I'm reminded of how... Uh, Xi Jinping uh, didn't like it when people compared him to Winnie the Pooh uh, and banned images when people tried to use uh, that as like a little caricature of him. He, he got he got mad about it and banned it. it. This is an incredibly insecure individual. It is. It's an incredibly insecure regime. And at a certain level, it's just totally pathetic. And yet, Jake, it's also deadly serious because he's not just doing this to Chinese citizens or even Chinese Americans. He's trying to export this technology, this way of governing, this whole authoritarian regime to other countries around the globe. And so when we see uh, Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin getting together, when we see Chinese expansion efforts in Africa and other places where they're trying to take over local governments and exert all sorts of covert influence in different ways, this is a very dangerous regime. It may be terribly insecure, it may be almost jokingly pathetic on a certain level, but it's also a deadly serious threat, not just to America, to American citizens, but to our fundamental democratic values, I would say fundamental human values, all around the globe. Member of the House Select Committee uh, on the Chinese uh, Communist Party uh, government, uh, Congressman uh, Seth Moulton, uh, thank you so much, appreciate it. Good to see you, Jake. We have some breaking news now. In our national lead, a grand jury in Akron, Ohio, has decided to not indict any of the eight police officers involved in the death of Jalen Walker. You might recall last June, Walker was shot dozens of times after leading police on a car and foot chase. Uh, this comes after police, uh, this came after police say uh, Walker fired a shot at officers and then ignored orders to drop his weapon. Let's get right to CNN's Polo Sandoval, who's been following this case for months. Polo, walk us through the decision of the grand jury. 
Yeah, Jake, that last point that you just mentioned is going to be key here in terms of what the grand jury decided. The attorney general in the state of Ohio making that announcement just in the last hour, essentially saying that the office, the actions of those eight Akron police officers on that night in June of last year are, in fact, justified because they because of the perceived threats. Not only did uh, Jalen Walker, the 25-year-old uh, man that was shot and killed by officers that night, not only did he uh, open fire at shooting at least one time during a uh, vehicle pursuit, but also this perceived threat, uh, the attorney general saying the so-called cross-draw motion, meaning Jalen Walker reaching towards his waistband after the report of that shot uh, that, that was fired 40 seconds into the pursuit, that was a massive game changer. And it is because of that reason that each officer established independently, according to inv state investigators with the Bureau of Criminal Investigation in, in Ohio, uh, that perceived threat. I can tell you the big question now is exactly how the community will respond for weeks now. Akron city officials have been bracing, preparing and trying to inform the community about that grand jury process. The grand jury seated just a week ago, and they've been going over this investigation, uh, being presented those findings by uh, the Ohio BCI until that decision was handed down today, or at least they voted today. Uh, and so now we will certainly have to see any potential frustrations in the community, the city even going as far as to block off certain buildings. There was, uh, there were small outbreaks of violence when we were on the ground last summer, immediately Following the release of the body camera video, members there in the community calling for justice. The Walker family certainly calling for that, but calling for peaceful demonstrations. And that is no doubt what we will see tonight and perhaps in the days ahead. Now that this uh, information is being received by members of the community, that the Akron police officers, eight in all, will not be charged after a Summit County grand jury uh, determined that their actions that night were justified when they opened fire, shooting Jalen Walker over 45 times. So, Paulo, there are no federal charges, there are no state charges, so is that it? Is that the end of the legal road? Yeah, we'll have to see about any potential uh, federal uh, investigation down, down the road, but at this point we haven't been led to believe that that will happen. What will likely happen, according to Akron PD, is this will now initiate the beginning of an internal use of force investigation, meaning each one of those eight officers will have to speak to Akron investigators and will have to account for each one of the bullets that left their barrel that night. Uh, unlike the grand jury proceedings where they did not have to uh, speak to grand jurors here according to a sergeant uh, with the akron police department that spoke at a community gathering not long, long ago they will be compelled to speak to 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 uh, investigators there with the akron police department so now it's about uh, defending their jobs if they wish to keep it but for now again this now clears them of any potential criminal charges jake all right paula sandoval thank you so much with that breaking news appreciate it in a small town in alabama Four innocent people were killed and 28 injured. This was at a Sweet 16 birthday party. But police in Alabama are describing as strong leads as a frustrated community pleads for answers. We'll tell you that story. Plus, the agenda for House Republicans who took their fight against crime to New York City today. And House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was also in Manhattan on a separate cause. How his speech today at the New York Stock Exchange sets up his own fight with President Biden. Stay with us. And we're back with our national lead. Investigators are pleading with the public to share any information they have as law enforcement searches for a suspect and a motive in yet another horrific mass shooting in the United States of America. This one killing four and injuring 28 at a teenager's Sweet 16 birthday party in Dadeville, Alabama, Saturday night. 
Today we're learning more about the victims who were killed. 17-year-old Kiki Smith, 18-year-old Phil Dowdell, 19-year-old Marcia Collins, and 23-year-old Corbin Holston. This is just the latest of more than 160 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year. Nine last weekend alone, a mass shooting CNN defines as a shooting with four or more victims, not including the shooter. That's also according to the Gun Violence Archive. CNN's Victor Blackwell is in Dadeville, Alabama for us, where investigators say they now have strong leads in their search for a suspect. He was respected by his peers. He was uh, loved by his teachers. Uh, Phil was just uh, what you call an all-around great guy. Once again in America, young lives, including Phil Stavius Dowdell's, taken in a mass shooting. This Dadeville dance studio was packed with kids celebrating a Sweet 16 party Saturday night, and then the shooting started. Four lives were lost in the tragic event that occurred here. There are 28 individuals that were injured. Police are asking for information about the attack. The DJ at the party told CNN that he did not see a fight or commotion before the gunfire began. I just had to try to make sure everybody around me was safe, so I put a couple people under the table in front of me. The shots were blowing off behind me. One of the victims, Phil Stavius Dowdell, was the birthday girl's brother a talented senior with a football scholarship described as the hometown hero. Phil just told me about a month ago, said, Coach, if anything ever happened to me, even when I go to college, take care of my two sisters. I never dreamed that he was talking about this. Another victim, 17-year-old Kiki Smith, set to attend the University of Alabama. She ran on the track team but was recently injured, so she took a role as a trainer. She uh, just had pulled ACL. And couldn't, couldn't run track, so she just came to help out. The county coroner says the two other deceased were young men. Marcia Collins, a 19-year-old aspiring musician who took a gap year headed to Louisiana State in the fall. And Corbin Holston, a 23-year-old from Dadeville. Lord, we pray that you would be with their parents, that they would be able to comfort them. A small town of around 3,000 people held an emotional vigil. These children had very bright futures, the ones that I knew from Dateville. Very, very athletic, very uh, humble children, very respectful children, um, smart. I think it's catching the community off guard. Um, I think they're in utter shock, and I don't think they have the words right now to even process what's going on right now. And about those 28 injuries, uh, authorities have not said how many of the 28 have been shot. It's possible some were injured in the melee of trying to get out of the building. But we do know this from a local hospital. At least 15 teenagers were shot. Six of them, at least, have been released from hospitals. So many questions about a potential shooter. But we know from the state agency investigating that they believe there's no public safety concern at this time, Jake. All right, Victor Blackwell in Dadeville, Alabama. Thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. Coming up next, some House Republicans argued that the Manhattan DA seems more focused on prosecuting Donald Trump than on stopping crime in New York. But is a hearing in Manhattan the best way to make their case? We'll talk to a House GOP member next. Stay with us. The Republican-led House Judiciary Committee is holding a field hearing in Manhattan today to focus on violent crime in New York. They are doing this at least in part to make the argument that the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, the man prosecuting Donald Trump, is focusing on the wrong things. But as CNN Sarah Murray reports, Democrats are saying that today's event is a mere political stunt. 
We welcome everyone to House Republicans looking to stick it to Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg in his own backyard. In this country, justice is supposed to be blind, regardless of race, religion, or creed. However, here in Manhattan, the scales of justice are weighed down by politics. The House Judiciary Committee holding a field hearing to highlight violent crime in New York. And until there is justice for the murder of my son, there will be no peace. This amid an escalating feud between GOP Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan and Manhattan's Democrat District Attorney. These are felony crimes in New York State, no matter who you are. Republicans have sought to discredit Bragg and his criminal case into former President Donald Trump after Trump pleaded not guilty to 34 felony charges. You have a district attorney interfering with the most important election we have, which is election of the commander in chief, the president of the United States. Bragg sued Jordan, aiming to block the Judiciary Committee's attempts to obtain documents and testimony related to the Trump investigation. Today, House attorneys argued they should be immune from civil lawsuits because their actions are within the legislative sphere. Democrats casting today's event as a political stunt. The chairman is doing the bidding of Donald Trump. The real purpose in coming to New York City is to harass, intimidate, and threaten Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. Taking aim at Republicans for refusing to crack down on guns in America. Bragg touting New York's crime statistics on Twitter as the hearing played out. Violent crime here is nowhere near record levels, but crime numbers rose in 2022, the year Bragg was sworn in from a year earlier. So far this year, crime is falling in key categories like murder, shooting incidents, and rape. As Democrats kept their focus on Trump today, they drew the ire of the GOP's witnesses. The problem is, is that this is a charade, and the purpose of this hearing is to cover up for what they know to be an inappropriate investigation. Don't insult my intelligence. Democrats have politicized this hearing, mentioning Donald Trump 38 times. That number for Republicans is zero. We are focused on victims and making sure that we support law and order in this country. Now, Bragg's office was clearly unimpressed by this field hearing today, a spokesperson saying for outside politicians to now appear in New York City on the taxpayer dime for a political stunt is a slap in the face to the dedicated NYPD officers, prosecutors and other public servants who work tirelessly every day with the facts and the data to keep our home safe. Jake. All right, Sarah Murray in New York. Thanks so much. 75 days and counting. That's how long it's been since President Biden and House Speaker Kevin McCarthy met discuss the looming debt ceiling crisis with zero action being taken since that February meeting. The White House argues that President Biden is waiting for Republicans to propose a budget. Speaker McCarthy says Biden won't even have a conversation about the matter. CNN's Melanie Zanona is live for us on Capitol Hill. Melanie, Kevin McCarthy marked his 100th day of his speakership with a trip to the New York Stock Exchange, and, and he spoke about his standoff with President Biden on this debt ceiling issue. What did he have to say? Well, Speaker Kevin McCarthy clearly is trying to turn up the heat right now and President Biden. And today at the New York Stock Exchange, he continued to slam Democrats and Biden and blame them for inflation through excessive spending. And he promised that Republicans are going to put a bill on the floor in the next few weeks that is going to raise the debt ceiling for one year and is also going to be paired with a reduction in federal spending. Now, he did not go into specific details about what those cuts would be, but we do know that House Republicans are looking to return to fiscal 2022 levels 
calls for non-defense discretionary spending. They want to claw back unspent COVID funds, and they also want to impose work requirements on Medicaid and other government assistant programs. But, Jake, that could be a really tough sell within the House GOP. Remember, McCarthy can only afford to lose four votes on any partisan bills. Moderates might not want to walk the plank on this bill and support those work requirements. And even if they were able to pass a bill like that, it would be dead on arrival in the Senate anyway. But for McCarthy, the point here is he's trying to force Biden back to the negotiating table for these long stalled talks, because so far the White House official position has been that Republicans should raise the debt ceiling without any conditions, which is what they did multiple times uh, under former President Donald Trump. So they continue to reiterate that today, but a senior White House official did tell our colleagues Jeremy Diamond and Arlette Sines that if McCarthy was able to pass a bill on his own to raise the debt ceiling, that then Biden would potentially be willing to sit down and talk to him. But again, Jake, that is a big, big if. All right, Melanie Zinon on Capitol Hill for us. Thanks so much. Uh, we have two, uh, two big stories there uh, to talk about with Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida. Thanks so much for joining us, Congressman. So I guess let's start with the House Judiciary Committee in New York City today. Uh, Republicans being very critical of the Manhattan District Attorney, Alvin Bragg, depicting him as soft on crime. Lots of people testifying about uh, their experiences as victims or, or their family members' victims. Um, Democrats are calling it a political stunt, and they say it's being undertaken to slam Bragg brag because he's prosecuting Donald Trump and not these other criminals. What's your take on it all? Well, Jake, I think there's a bigger story here in that crime uh, is at crisis levels across our inner cities, uh, including New York, but Chicago, L.A. I mean, we could we could go down the list. Uh, and I think it is often. Um, well, look, at the end of the day, to hear the actual stories from these victims uh, who themselves are the victims, not the criminal, uh, and to hear time and time again uh, that the perpetrators of these violent crimes uh, on, uh, on their relatives were not prosecuted or were basically slapped on the wrist is, is something certainly, I think, worthy of the Judiciary Committee highlighting. I, I, I take your point, and it is horrible what's happening uh, uh, nationwide, um, although the statistics differ here and there. I mean, for example, you represent Florida's 6th Congressional District. It's between Jacksonville and Orlando. Mm -hmm. Both of them have higher homicide rates than New York City. That's according to an analysis from uh, the conservative organization Wirepoints. New York City statistically is one of the safest big cities in the country in terms of murder. And, And that's why I think this focus on New York might look political uh, to some observers as opposed to actually being concerned about victims of crime because the, they can be found yeah. anywhere, really. Yeah, well, but Jake, I mean, you could take that one statistic, but when you look at carjackings, when you look at robberies, when you look at the amount of assaults, for example, on subway stations, uh, I mean, c- crime is, is up and crime's up in cities all over uh, the country, including in Florida, and you have to look, you know, for example, you just mentioned Orlando, that's largely a Democrat-run city and county. So I think it's taking a broader perspective on, you know, looking at these policies, and is it the policies that are leading to these bad results? And if they are, then we need to change the policy, and we would certainly want to highlight uh, to our voters that if people don't change the policy and you continue to get these bad results, vote them out of office. Let's make change. Uh, But look, I mean, we could look at D.C. where the president just signed a bill passed out of the Republican House uh, that that walked back uh, massive reductions in all kinds of crimes. 
I mean, the president even agreed with Republicans on that, that that was going way too far. And we're seeing that in city after city after city. We're seeing DAs get recalled in places, district attorneys get recalled in places like San Francisco because they've gone too far. Yeah. I mean, for the record, the Democratic mayor of D.C. also sided with House Republicans on that because of the mainly, I think, because of a lot of reasons. But one of them was uh, punishment for carjacking uh, was proposed to go down. But which uh, is up by double digits in the nation's own capital. Yeah, it's horrible. Let's talk about the debt ceiling standoff because the White House and House Republicans, Speaker McCarthy, engaged in the standoff. Uh, I want to get your reaction to something uh, President Trump said in, in 2019. Take a take a listen. I can't imagine anybody ever even thinking of using the debt ceiling as a negotiating wedge. Uh, when I first came into office, I asked that. I can't imagine anybody ever even. So thinking- Donald Trump is there saying that the, the debt ceiling should not be used as a negotiating wedge. Now, Republicans, House Republicans raised the debt ceiling three times under Trump. We should no doubt. We should note that you were not among them. You voted against raising the debt ceiling in 2019 after those comments from Trump. But it does seem as though, you know, Republicans did that. And now that a Democrat's in the White House, things are different. Why? Well, as you mentioned, Jake, number one, I voted against it. And then number two, uh, I think it's a little bit disingenuous to not point out what else was going on right, right then, which was a nationwide lockdown of our entire economy. I'd probably agree that that probably wasn't the time to then have to negotiate structural reforms to out-of-control spending to the federal government. So I think let's, let's set that one aside as kind of a, a pretty extraordinary moment in history. That said, look, Jake, as a, just as a national security issue, just the interest on our national debt is approaching the size of our entire defense budget. You and I were talking about uh, China uh, earlier. The Chinese actually are building in when our economy goes upside down and insolvent uh, as part of their as part of their broader strategy to be a global hegemon and be the global leader. At some point, we have to get this under control. And I think to expect just a continued blank check without even a conversation uh, about federal spending, about work requirements, about some of these things that are pretty common sense. Uh, is, I, I just don't think this is uh, a, a bridge that we can't close. Put some common sense reforms in place, uh, and then we can talk about, like, uh, of course, we're not going to default on our debt. Republican Congressman Mike Waltz of Florida, thanks so much. Good to see you again. Okay, thanks, James. Coming up next, in Russia, Putin's latest way of silencing a critic of the Kremlin. Stay with us. Topping our world lead 18 days after American Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich was wrongfully detained on bogus espionage charges in Russia. The U.S. ambassador to Russia was finally, finally able to see him. After meeting Gershkovich in Russia's infamous Lefortovo prison, U.S. Ambassador Lynn Tracy tweeted, quote, he is in good health and remains strong. We reiterate our call for his immediate Release, unquote. Gershkovich will likely stay in the prison, which the Wall Street Journal describes as a, quote, sterile facility engineered to keep inmates from ever seeing one another until late May. And today, the harshest sentence yet in Putin's draconian crackdown on freedom and even basic dissent over his brutal war in Ukraine. His only crime being criticism of Putin, 41-year-old human rights advocate Vladimir Karamorza, has been sentenced to 25 years in a Russian penal colony, 25 years on charges of treason. As CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us now, just before Karamorza's detention one year ago, 
He characterized Putin's government as a, quote, regime of murderers in an interview with CNN. Today, the whole world sees what the Putin regime is doing to Ukraine. The cluster bombs on residential areas, the bombings of maternity wards and hospitals and schools. It was this speech before the Arizona State House that Russian prosecutors used as part of their case against Vladimir Karamurza. Russia had launched its invasion of Ukraine just a few weeks earlier, and the veteran Kremlin critic, like so many others, was incensed. The war crimes. These are war crimes. Less than a month later, Karamazov was arrested in Moscow, accused of discrediting the Russian army. He was later also charged with the much more serious offence of treason. In court in Moscow, Karamazov stood motionless as he was sentenced to 25 years in jail. Outside, there was international outcry. Criminalization of criticism of government action is a sign of weakness, not strength. We support the right of Mr. Karamurza and every Russian citizen to have a voice in the direction of their country. More than 40 other foreign diplomats were at the sentencing too. While in Britain, where Karamurza is a dual citizen, the Russian ambassador was summoned over what was called a politically motivated conviction. It would by no means be Russia's first. The country's most high-profile opposition figure, Alexei Navalny, is already serving an 11-and-a-half-year sentence amid renewed concerns for his health behind bars. Another prominent Russian opposition leader, Ilya Yashin, was recently sentenced to eight and a half years in jail for criticising the Ukraine war. This will all end soon, he shouted out in court. But there's no real reason for optimism. In fact, the Russian crackdown on free speech is getting worse. Only last month, US reporter Evan Gershkovich of the Wall Street Journal in Russia was arrested for espionage. The paper vehemently denies the charges against him. But it all sends a chilling Kremlin message aimed at silencing the voices against it. Well, Jake, tonight uh, the Russian Foreign Ministry is criticising the international condemnation of the Vladimir Karamazov case, accusing accusing the United States and other uh, countries of interfering in Russia's internal affairs. What's clear is that maximum 25-year prison sentence uh, that's been imposed on this opposition activist uh, sends a clear message that the Kremlin is prepared to lock up anyone it regards as a political threat. Jake. All right, Matthew Chance, thank you so much. Next to Ukraine, where CNN heard from folks adamant to not leave their towns, even with scenes of the brutal war creeping closer to their homes and loved ones. Stay with us. To the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, we go in our world lead over the weekend. House-to-house firefights and at least 100 shells launched by Russia in just a 24-hour period, that's according to Ukraine, and despite Russia's claims that its troops are advancing, footage geolocated by CNN shows that Ukrainian troops are holding their positions in central Bakhmut, all while Russia aims to destroy towns in eastern Ukraine. CNN's Ben Wiedemann spoke with some residents who, after more than a year of war, finally have accepted that it's time to leave. Another family is moving out leaving the frontline town of Krasnohorivka with the help of the police. 
Perhaps to lessen the blow to his children, Evgeny quips, we'll be back, it's just a vacation. 84-year-old Raya doesn't sugarcoat it. It's like torture, she says. But don't worry, we'll survive. Raya has lived in Krasnoharivka all her life. Rustam and his colleagues venture out to these frontline villages several times a week, trying to convince people to move to safer ground. It's dangerous work, but for Rustam, it's worth the risk to get these children out of harm's way. Looking into those eyes, he asks, what else can you do? If friendly persuasion doesn't work, there are other means. There's an order from local government requiring that children be evacuated from areas close to the fighting. This is how Vasily goes about the job of friendly persuasion, sitting, talking, trying to convince those who remain that their lives are in peril. The people in this basement-turned-bomb shelter have been down here for more than a year, and clearly that has taken a toll. Their homes are here, everything they know is here. They refuse to leave. The eastern end of Krasnoharivka is the hardest hit, yet even here there's a stubborn holdout. They've come to this building to try to convince an old man to leave. They've already evacuated his wife. As you can see, this area has been seriously smashed by incoming rounds. The Russians are just five kilometers, around three miles from here. He didn't want his face to appear on camera. I'm not going anywhere, he says. I was born here and I'm going to die here. The chances of that happening here are perilously high. And what makes these areas even more dangerous is that the Russians are now deploying what are known as guided aerial bombs. These are bombs that are launched about 30 miles away from the front line, and they're using them ever more frequently in towns and villages like those. Jake? Ben Wiedemann in eastern Ukraine for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, Senate Democrats want to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein on a key committee, but Senate Republicans, well, they might have other plans. Plus, in a remarkable update, the Kansas City teen shot twice after showing up at the wrong house to pick up his brothers is now out of the hospital. But will the man who shot him allegedly face charges? Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is not backing down when it comes to his fight with the Sunshine State's largest employer, the Florida governor, now threatening to build a prison next to Mickey Mouse's home. Plus, a door knock gone terribly wrong, an elderly white man accused of shooting a 16-year-old black teenager after the teen knocked on the wrong door when trying to pick up his younger brother's growing questions today about why the homeowner was arrested but released in less than two hours. And leading this hour, an Ohio grand jury decided to not indict eight Akron police officers involved in the shooting death of Jalen Walker. Walker died after being shot last June during an attempted traffic stop. Police say that Walker refused to pull over and they fired a shot. And then they say he fired a shot at them from his car. He then tried to run away, leaving his gun in the car. 
The Ohio Attorney General says police did not know Walker was unarmed when he ran. Officers fired 94 shots at Walker. His corpse had 46 gunshot wounds. That's according to state officials. Protests erupted in Akron after officers' body cam footage was released. We're going to start our coverage with CNN's Polo Sandoval, who's been following this case for months. And Polo, what do we know about the grand jury's decision to not bring charges against any of the eight officers? Well, Jake, a likely deciding factor was what Ohio state investigators were able to determine. That is that the 25-year-old Jalen Walker reportedly shot at least one time at officers during the vehicle pursuit portion of that night back in June of last year. And because of that, when the 25-year-old man bailed out of his vehicle and then initiated that foot chase, according to the attorney general, officers believe that he was still armed. And that is why uh, authorities established that when he reached towards his waistband, they assumed that he had a weapon. uh, And that's when they opened fire. Of course, we still have to find out if that uh, use of force will actually be justified, but this certainly is going to raise a lot of questions about a potential, uh, about what might happen in the community there in Akron. I should tell you, uh, Jake, I've been speaking to people there in the community. They have prepared for this for weeks for this announcement that you're about to hear from the state's attorney general. And what um, is very concluded that the officers were legally justified in their use of force. The grand jury just a little while ago, issued what is called a no bill, meaning that there will be no state criminal action, no charges at the state level. That does not resolve any potential civil action that might be brought for wrongful death. The family of the Walker, or rather the attorney of the Walker family telling me, Jake, that they had been briefed on all potential outcomes, and that includes exactly what we heard from state investigators, or at least the state prosecutors, uh, that the grand jury decided not to indict those eight police officers for shooting and killing Jalen Walker. Of course, uh, not being indicted doesn't mean that, you know, they did everything according to proper procedure. What's next for the police officers? So this, these no-bills now uh, will initiate an administrative investigation, a use-of-force investigation that Akron PD will now be looking into the actions that each one of those eight officers will have to account for each one of the bullets that left their weapons. But we should stress, Jake, that is an administrative investigation separate from any potential criminal proceedings that would have happened, which we now know after this grand jury uh, decision in Summit County today. But that will not happen. Charges will not be filed. At least criminal charges won't be filed against those eight officers. All right, Polo Sandoval, thanks. I want to bring in criminal defense attorney Joey Jackson now. And Joey, what's your reaction to the grand jury deciding to not indict any of the eight officers in this case? Yeah, Jake, I think the measure of, import, of, of really disappointment stems from the fact that I believe that the community would have wanted, and everyone really who was assessing this would have wanted, a jury determination. What's the distinction? The distinction is a grand jury is impaneled, and they don't decide guilt or innocence. They merely decide whether there's reason to believe that a crime occurred and that any of these officers committed that. Of course, we know that the prosecutor controls the grand jury, instructs the grand jury as to the law, and And it's done in secrecy. And so I think if it were brought to the forefront and it were done where there were really a forum 
where people would have been allowed to see the evidence, see the witnesses, look at the questions, see the responses, I think that there would be more public trust. But to the extent that it did not get that far, I think that there's great disappointment within the community with respect to the grand jury's determination. So the grand jury um, must have concluded that the officers were legally justified in their use of force. What, What do you think likely went into that decision? There's always three things that go into any decision with respect to justification, right? Whether you are engaging in defense of self. And that goes to the issue of were you in immediate fear of death or serious bodily injury by anyone who you were chasing, right? In this particular case, the young man that died that had 46 uh, wounds on his body. Were you in immediate fear? The second analysis is was the threat posed and your actions to that threat proportionate to whatever threat was posed? One could question whether the amount of shots, there was any proportionality or disproportionality, which I believe the community feels. And the last thing, Jake, is whether there was a degree of re- Reasonableness. Did you act reasonably under the circumstances based upon all the evidence the grand jury heard, having been instructed by the prosecutor who controls the grand jury in secret? Apparently, this grand jury determined that there were those elements, the immediacy, the proportionality and the reasonableness were present in this case. Uh, many, many may disagree. Do you think that if the um, if the evidence was presented suggesting uh, that a shot was fired uh, against the police officers and that the police officers did not know that he left his gun in the car, that that would be enough to exonerate the police? So I think the issue with that, Jake, is that those are questions for a trial, right? I think you can have people, the, the direct answer to your question is that it depends when the shot was fired. If you, shot a, if you fired a shot at some earlier time and informs the judgment of the police as to whether or not there is a gun, that's going to heighten your alertness. That in and of itself doesn't give you the right as an officer or anyone to fire a shot unless at the time the shot was fired, you had that immediacy of fear. But the issues about whether or not the actions were justified, whether they were not, did the police act properly, appropriately, in accordance with regulations and rules, etc.? That's something, I think, again, that the public would have wanted to see by virtue of bringing the case to a jury. And to the extent that we've heard many times that a jury would indict a ham sandwich, you're left to wonder what happened in this particular case. And I think the community, you know, whether real, imagined, perception or otherwise, the perception is the reality. They didn't indict. Why didn't they? Why wasn't the public allowed to see what would have occurred? And I think this goes to the notion of whether people really trust a system. Who is that system working for? Should it not have gone to trial? And if it did, the public would have had every right to see, evaluate, review the evidence and make and draw their own conclusions. Grand jury is a secret. You don't have that ability in this case. Joey Jackson, thanks so much. Also internationally, the door knock gone terribly wrong. An elderly white man <clears throat> allegedly shot 16-year-old Ralph Yarl twice after the teen knocked on the wrong door when going to pick up his younger brothers. Yarl's family says the teen thought he was knocking on the door of 15th Terrace. Instead, he was at 15th Street. According to the Kansas City Star, the teenager has been released from the hospital, but now protesters are demanding that the suspect in shooting him be charged. He was arrested, but he was released less than two hours later. CNN's Lucy Kafanov is in Kansas City, where 16-year-old Ralph Yarl has a long road of recovery ahead of him. Calls for justice as hundreds of protesters marched in Kansas City, Missouri, after the shooting of a black teenager. When black lives are under attack, 
What do you do? Stand up, fight Hit by bullets to the left side of the head and his right arm after he went to the wrong home to pick up his younger brothers Thursday evening. Black Lives Matter! 16-year-old Ralph Jarl rang the doorbell at a residence just before 10 p.m. on 115th Street instead of 115th Terrace and was shot by an elderly white man. To have black people ring a doorbell and then have a white citizen shoot him in the head first and then shoot him a second time. I mean, there is no way you can justify this. We can only imagine if the roles were reversed. A neighbor called 911 after Jarl showed up on her doorstep, bleeding but alert. The suspect in a shooting, a man in his 80s, was taken into custody just before midnight, placed on a 24-hour hold, then released less than two hours later. Police saying they are working to get a victim statement and additional forensic evidence before making a decision about referring the case for prosecution. Missouri has a stand-your-ground law that allows physical force to defend yourself if there's reasonable belief that unlawful force is imminent. The information that we have now, it does not say that, that it's racially motivated. That's still an active investigation. But as a chief of police, I do recognize the racial components of this case. I do recognize and understand um, the community's concern. Jarl was hospitalized and released Sunday, according to the Kansas City Star. My nephew is alive yes. and he is healing. It is not the story that that individual intended for us to tell. Jarl's family says he's an honor student, a leader in the marching band at his high school, and hopes to attend Texas A&M University to study chemical engineering when he graduates high school. His family attorneys in a statement asked that police prosecute to the full extent of the law the man responsible for this horrendous and unjustifiable shooting. Jarl's father asking for the gunman to be charged in the shooting. We want charges. That's what we want. While protesters pray, march, and demand justice, Jarl's family also asks for hope and healing. We have a lot to be thankful for. That right there is a lot of hate. This right here is a lot of love. And Jake, this is the home where that teenager, Ralph Jarl, mistakenly show up, showed up ringing the doorbell. He managed to walk away, crossing the street to a neighbor's home, despite being twice shot. My producer spoke with a neighbor. She described him as a very strong man, very brave. We also spoke to a fellow classmate of Jarl's who described him as a really nice all-around guy. Students, teachers, everyone appeared to love him. Uh, no charges have been filed against the alleged shooter yet, but the Kansas City police telling CNN that the shooting remains under investigation. Jake? Hmm. Lucy Kafanoff, thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to talk to the attorney representing Jarl's family, Benjamin Crump. Plus, two senators make their return to work while big questions are building about another senator who remains absent. And we're back with more on that tragic Kansas City shooting where a white man in his 80s shot a 16-year-old black teenager who had knocked on the wrong door when trying to pick up his younger brothers. Here now is attorney Ben Crump. He's representing the family of the 16-year-old Ralph Yarl. Um, ben, uh, Mr. Crump, good to see you. The Kansas City Star is reporting uh, that Ralph Yarl was released from the hospital yesterday. Uh, is that good news? How is he doing? It's a miracle, Jake. Nothing short of a miracle. Um, obviously, he's still struggling uh, severe post-traumatic stress disorder, 
Uh, but he and his family are just happy that he's alive after being shot in the head. Is he going to be ultimately okay? What's the prognosis? Uh, the prognosis is that he's young and strong and he's a fighter. The fact that he has a lot of prayers that he hopefully will fully recover, but it's just the beginning. Now, he's not out of the woods yet, but the great thing is they said he was stable enough to go to his home. Yeah, that's that's amazing. So police have not yet released the name of the shooter. Uh, we know he's a white man in his 80s. Uh, investigators say they're evaluating whether or not uh, his actions uh, shooting this young man are, are protected under Missouri's Stand Your Ground law. Um, is that a possible valid defense for him? Jake Tapper, you know, it is so offensive when people try to justify shooting unarmed black people, especially our young children. He merely rang the doorbell. That was it. And the owner of the home shoots through the door, hitting him in the head, and then shoots him a second time, aiming at his chest. And had he not had his arm there, the bullet would have went in his chest. And so how is this ever justified? I mean, you have people who are delivery men. So do you mean to tell me now we're going to tolerate as a society when you have a black delivery man from Amazon or FedEx ring your doorbell that a white citizen can profile them and shoot them and say, just because the color of his skin, I thought he was burglarizing my home. That is unacceptable. So why has the Kansas City police chief not arrested this man? It, it, it makes no sense to us, Jake Tapper. It's two Americas, you know, because nobody can tell us if the roles were reversed and you had a black man shoot a white 16-year-old teenager for merely ringing his doorbell that he would not be arrested. I mean, this citizen went home and slept in his bed at night after shooting that young black kid in the head. Uh, It harkens back to tragedies like Trayvon Martin being killed and like Ahmaud Arbery being killed. And so yet again, we continue to fight to say you can't profile and shoot our children uh, just because you have this stand your ground law. Unacceptable. Police have said, have claimed that they can't make an arrest until uh, the 16-year-old Ralph is up and can provide a statement. But we've talked to some Kansas City attorneys who say that's not true. Um, uh, Philip Brooks, a Kansas City area defense attorney, told the Kansas City Star, for example, that the victim doesn't have to say anything on physical evidence alone. The prosecutors can charge the suspect. Do you think the Kansas City police are purposefully delaying an arrest or even just refusing to conduct an arrest? I think the Kansas City police is treating this differently than they would have treated it, have the racial components been reversed. We have had this play out far too often, Jake Tapper, when you have innocent black victims, whether it's Breonna Taylor or any others, they try to come up with excuses why not to arrest people. 
uh, you know, we saw in Tyree Nichols when it was five black police officers that they terminated, arrested, and charged those officers within 20 days. It's just inexplicable when our children are laying on the ground, shot or killed, the ways that American legal system tried to go to justify these horrendous acts. Jake Tapper, if it would have been a black man shooting a 16-year-old white teenager and they didn't arrest him and process him and set a bail, there would be chaos in the streets. When will Ralph be able to talk to the police, do you think? You know, I'm sure Attorney Lee Merritt and I, we will make him available when the police want to talk to him, but we find it offensive that they're trying to use this excuse. And so are you telling me if they, the miracle wouldn't have happened, Jake Tapper, and Ralph would have been killed? Are you telling me that they're saying they can't arrest the white shooter until they get a statement from the person? So if he would have been killed, so they're trying to tell us they never would have have arrested the shooter. Yeah. Uh, Lastly, sir, before you go, I want to get your reaction to the grand jury in Akron declining to indict those eight police officers who fatally shot uh, 25-year-old Jalen Walker last year. Um, What what did you make of that decision? Again, it's the sad reality we live in being black in America, that police could shoot 60 times this young man who didn't kill anybody at all, and it'd be justified, but yet you have Dylan Roof go into a church, shoot nine innocent people. They follow him across two states, and then they take him to get a burger and fries from Burger King, and yet they try to tell us that it's equal justice. We have to make America acknowledge that we have two justice systems, and we have to fight to get equal justice for every citizen in the United States of America. Ben Crump, always good to have you on. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. Still ahead, surprising pushback on the Bud Light boycotts. Why Donald Trump Jr. is calling to end it. And we're back with our politics lead and two big returns on Capitol Hill today. Minority leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, is back in the Senate after spending the last several weeks Recovering from a fall, McConnell was hospitalized with a concussion and a rib fracture after taking a spill at a dinner event last month. Democratic Senator John Fetterman of the Great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania also returned to the Hill today after receiving treatment for clinical depression, which worsened last year after the stroke that he suffered in May. Fetterman told reporters, quote, it's great to be back as he arrived at the Capitol earlier this afternoon. Also in our politics lead, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer of New York says he's hopeful Republicans will join Democrats to vote to temporarily replace Senator Dianne Feinstein of California on the Senate Judiciary as Feinstein recovers from shingles back in her home state. An effort to move on judicial confirmations, which are currently stalled by her absence. But will Republicans go along with this? Senator Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Republican has already said she's not going to back this effort. CNN's Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, how likely is it that other Republicans are going to go along with this? 
Very unlikely, Jake. In fact, I have been speaking with top Republicans all afternoon, and they are making clear that they will not support the Democratic effort to replace Dianne Feinstein from the Senate Judiciary Committee, essentially giving Republicans veto power over judicial nominees who may move along party lines, because that one absence, Dianne Feinstein's absence, ensures that they could bottle up any judicial nominee in committee if they do not give consent to advance any of President Biden's judicial nominees to the Senate floor. Earlier today, John Cornyn, a senior Republican, a member of Mitch McConnell's leadership team, made clear he does not believe Republicans should cooperate. This is, it turns out, unprecedented. Over the years, senators from both sides, as I indicated a moment ago, have needed time away due to various health issues. Never, not once, have we allowed temporary substitutes on committees. And now is not the time to start. Republicans are not going to break this precedent in order to bail out Senator Schumer or the Biden administration's most controversial nominees. And I just talked to Senator Chuck Grassley, who's also 89 years old, like Dianne Feinstein. Someone who was close to Dianne Feinstein said he would not support this. He told me, I don't think senatorial courtesy will work to move liberal judges. This will only intensify pressure on Feinstein herself to either resign or come back to the Senate. So far, Democratic leaders are not going as far as calling on her to resign. Dick Durbin, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, telling me earlier that he was not willing to go there yet. He just wants her to come back soon so they can move on some judges. At least 12 at the moment are stalled, potentially more the longer Feinstein is out. Right. If she actually resigns, then a seat opens up on judiciary and then Schumer just gets to name uh, who that person is. But they don't have to vote on this accommodation. Manu Raju, thanks so much. Joining us now, Democratic Congresswoman from Washington and House Progressive Caucus Chair uh, Pramila Jayapal. Uh, Chairwoman, first, uh, what do you think about all this? It looks as though that uh, judiciary uh, judicial nominations are going to be held up because of the situation with Senator Feinstein. Do you agree with your colleagues uh, Rokana and Dean Phillips, that, that she really should just resign. Well, Jake, it's, it's great to be with you. I mean, first of all, I wish her well with her health. Um, that is what she's dealing with is a serious health concern. Secondly, I think Republicans should think about what's going to happen when the shoe's on the other foot. This is ridiculous that they don't want to accommodate. But third, and maybe most importantly, Look, I think that I hope she's able to return quickly, but I think that there are serious concerns about judicial nominations, about other bills. There may be votes on abortion that the Senate will have to take. There may be uh, there's certainly going to be votes on the debt ceiling. These are critical pieces of business that the country needs. And we need a full complement of senators in order to make those things happen. So hope she returns quickly. uh, But obviously, we need to move forward on these on these votes. Well, if I'm interpreting you correctly, are you saying that if the reality is she's not going to be able to come back, let's say, in the next few weeks, she should resign just for the good of the country? Is that the, basically the message you're saying? I, I think every, every senator has got to make that decision. But obviously, there's a lot at stake for the country. She's been an amazing leader in the Senate during her years. And, um, and I think she's going to have to make that decision for herself. But uh, there is a lot at stake for the country. I want to turn to another huge issue this week, the U.S. Supreme Court weighing a judge's decision, a judge in Texas, uh, to restrict, basically to ban an abortion drug, Mifepristone. You've been vocal about your own experience uh, having had an abortion. In 2019, you wrote, quote, 
I have never spoken publicly about my abortion. In some ways, I have felt I should not have to because it is an intensely personal decision. But I have decided to speak about it now because I am deeply concerned about the intensified efforts to strip choice and constitutional rights away from pregnant people in the simplistic ways of trying to criminalize abortion. Obviously, that was 2019. Things have uh, gotten dramatically uh, worse for those who agree with you uh, on this issue. Uh, Are you concerned at all uh, by this emerging tactic of conservatives uh, to restrict abortion? And are you worried that the U.S. Supreme Court is going to keep Mifepristone banned on a national level? I'm really concerned, Jake. I mean, look, this is uh, an issue that is right now being dictated by the extreme right wing of the Republican Party, because the reality is that the majority of the country agrees that abortion should be safe and legal. And also the reality is that the whole discussion on abortion is about freedom and privacy. Do you want a Supreme Court justice in your bedroom making decisions about what you can or can't do? This is Uh, you know, at the core, it's a very Republican idea in terms of keeping our freedoms. And so this is, it has severe consequences for pregnant people across the country. And if Mifepristone, if the Supreme Court decides to uphold the horrendous, uh, non-scientific, completely outrageous decision by the Texas judge, then it's also going to throw the country into chaos as far as approvals of drugs in this country. Think about your cancer drug. Think about uh, any number of drugs that have been out there for a long time. If somebody suddenly doesn't like them, are they just going to be able to argue that, uh, go to a judge and say, well, we have a political view of this drug, this vaccine, whatever it is, and we're not going to look at the science of it. And, you know, I think that's that's why, in fact, a lot of pharmaceutical companies also are, are starting to weigh in on this because it has huge implications for all kinds of medications across the country. Democratic Congresswoman from Washington, uh, Pramila Jayapal, thank you so much. Always good to see you. Thank you, Jake. Coming up, why Governor Ron DeSantis is threatening to build a prison next to the so-called happiest place on earth. A super PAC aligned with the possible presidential campaign of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is taking direct aim at Donald Trump, saying that the former president is lying about DeSantis's record. Donald Trump is being attacked by a Democrat prosecutor in New York. So why is he spending millions attacking the Republican governor of Florida? Trump's stealing pages from the Biden-Pelosi playbook, repeating lies about Social Security. Here's the truth from Governor Ron DeSantis. We're not going to mess with Social Security as Republicans. What did Trump say? Entitlements ever be on your plane. At some point they will be. We will take a look at that. Trump should fight Democrats, not lie about Governor DeSantis. Pretty interesting stuff. We showed that ad. I want to have full disclosure here because I showed the the pudding ad that uh, Trump is doing, the Trump super PAC is doing against DeSantis. I showed it. Twice, because I think it's so funny. So out of, out of fairness, <laughs> uh, we ran that entire ad. But Heidi, this is interesting stuff. Uh, they're really, I mean, DeSantis isn't even a candidate. Well, he has the benefit of knowing what doesn't work, which is in 2016, standing back, saying, I'm taking the high ground and being attacked as low energy, as a little, or in this case, a pudding pilferer. Um, and so he's doing what he ha- he's also in a very uh, precarious position right now in his campaign where the narrative seems to be shifting a little bit to that he's struggling. Um, and look, this is a guy who ran literally had an ad that he is a warrior. The worst thing would be for him to be 
branded as weak. And so, yeah, he's, he's, he learned from 2016. But and he's he, not taking him on directly. This is a pack for him. That and supposedly has no relationship or contact with him. Exactly. Supposedly. And so I, I wonder if this is the strategy, if this is the playbook that Republican candidates are going to use. Are they not going to take on Trump directly, but let others do it for them, let the PAC speak for them. I covered the Georgia Senate race last year, and sometimes the ads against Herschel Walker were really bruising. And then you would ask Senator Warnock about the contents of the ads, and he would change the conversation. He never really as uh, brutally took on Herschel Walker. And so I sort of see the same strategy at work here. Although, Sarah, we should point out, it's not as though DeSantis is not willing to, to punch it's just that he wants to punch Mickey Mouse. Uh, he's continuing his fight uh, against Disney uh, and uh, Bob Iger and, and all that. Uh, the company was trying to thwart the DeSantis effort to take over their kingdom that they had there. Uh, here is uh, a threat uh, from Governor DeSantis about what he might do with the land surrounding uh, Disney World should things not go according to plan. Come to think of it now, people are like, well, there's what should we do with this land? And so, you know, it's like, OK, kids, I mean, people have said, you know, maybe maybe have a, another uh, maybe create a state park, maybe try to do more amusement uh, parks. Uh, someone even said, like, maybe you need another state prison. Who knows? I mean, I just think that the, the possibilities are, 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 are endless. Yeah, so he would definitely rather fight with Disney uh, than he would fight with Donald Trump. And this is, a, this is an attempt to sort of change the subject, right? The subject about Ron DeSantis for the last couple of weeks is this guy's taking in the polls. Donald Trump is owning him. He's pudding with three fingers. And so, you know, what is his, like, the only thing he has right now, because he is governor of Florida, is to try to fight Florida fights, right? And so he's going back to the well on Disney and trying to, to look like he's tough there. I'm not sure this is it, though. Like, I'm not sure this is the thing that, bring this guy, that brings this guy back. I mean, that ad... That ad was kind of lame. It's a little whiny. It's like, why are they atta- Why is he attacking me? Ron mm. DeSantis is going to have to find a better strategy for a straight-on attack on Trump. What would you? You're a Democrat, so you're not going to advise him. <laughs> but theoretically, yeah. what would you tell DeSantis to do? Well, I'll, I start here, which is that he's got to get into the rhythm of the fight and the campaign, right? And if you've never been on the national stage before, it's really hard. It's so different than running for governor. And so he's got to get his legs and learn how to fight Donald Trump. So I give him a little bit of space in that this isn't the greatest attack ad I ever saw. But uh, these things have metaphysical properties as much as physical properties. And he's got to learn kind of the energy level and the rhythm of getting in a big national fight. And so far, this is for his first trip. So uh, right now in a big national fight is uh, Budweiser and specifically (laughs) Bud Light. And, And that's happened. Conservatives calling for a boycott of Bud Light over the company's Partnership with a trans influencer, uh, they just they sent uh, her a beer, I, I think, uh, with her picture on it. Uh, now Bud Light does seem to have an unlikely ally, Donald Trump Jr., who generally rails along with DeSantis against woke messaging. He's calling for an end to the boycott. He explains that the company, Anheuser-Busch, mainly donates to Republicans. We should note that uh, alongside him doing this, uh, the National Republican Congressional Committee, the NRCC, they got rid of all their, uh, of all their anti-Bud Light uh, activism. Uh, what, what is going on here? The donors started making phone calls. You can't go around attacking donors, uh, Republican donors. And once they start making calls, they're basically, you know, they got the Trumps involved. And so they were saying, call off your attack dogs. The problem is 
you may have noticed the Republican base now has very much a life and a mind of its own. And so I think uh, they will probably continue this despite what Don Jr. might say. So you have to be a little worried about the big donors. And you think about it, like what made Trump novel in 2016 is now a potential liability. The Cokes are a hard pass. Sheldon Adelson's no longer around. And the religious right got what it wanted with the court that Donald Trump filled. And so he, you know, it's unclear whether he can recreate the magic of running with small donors and small contributions like he did in 2016. What's the objection, though? I mean, like, uh, beer companies have all sorts of niche advertising here and there. Right. And it's it's sort of intellectually inconsistent with what they argue. Right. They argue against cancellation, but they're going to cancel a business for making a business decision. It doesn't really seem like it's it makes a whole lot of sense. It's 10 million followers or something like that. So it's 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 a pure business decision. Yeah. What's your take? Well, for the Republicans, <laughs> the bear is out of the cage. Right. So for them to try to go around and clip its fingernails, they're going to end up getting bitten because the, the Republican Party today is not on board with anything that has to do with a kind of multicultural, multi-ethnic, you know, America where everybody gets to participate. And so for them, for Don Jr., who's come out and sort of been against this, to try to put this bear back in the cage, I just think he's, uh, it's already gone. It's but already gone. It's a cocaine bear, they, is what you're saying. And aren't, they, <laughs> and aren't they always railing against identity politics? Like, why are they even waging this battle that centrally, like, leads back to this issue of identity? Well, I, I'm... All I'm going to say is it's not particularly good beer, but that's a separate issue. <laughs> Thanks to all coming up. Some ba- quarrel. You're going to well, it's cheap. Uh, babies in NICUs abandoned without doctors or nurses. Hospital patients left to fend for themselves, all because of what's being called a violent coup attempt. Stay with us. Our world lead now. What's being called an attempted coup in the African nation of Sudan? Residents of the country's capital say today has been the heaviest day of shelling since the outbreak of violence began last week. And the United Nations says at least 180 people were killed there over the weekend. As CNN's Nim Al-Bagger reports for us now, even hospitals have come under fire. Sudan's military with a show of strength over the capital, Khartoum. As birdsong and artillery fire echo... This country, roiled in recent years by conflict and coups, is once again the plaything of strongmen and what the military is calling an attempted coup. Abdel Fattah al-Burhan, Sudan's military's leader, is fighting for dominance with Mohammed Hamdan Degelu, known as Hemeti, who leads the paramilitary rapid support forces, which gained notoriety in the western Darfur region. And it is the most vulnerable who are paying the price. Two doctors' organizations say that in Khartoum, both sides have hit hospitals in the fighting. At least half a dozen, though both sides deny it. CNN obtained eyewitness accounts from doctors on the ground who told CNN that the paramilitary rapid support force directly targeted a hospital where wounded armed forces soldiers and their families were being treated including one doctor who says she witnessed the RSF approach Al Ma'allim Hospital in central Khartoum. I have to be strong enough to speak to you. You're the one that's going to tell the world what's happening to us. The evacuation was chaos. We were running, as soldiers were shouting, run, and then someone else would yell, stop, it's not safe. But what choice did we have? Three separate doctors there described to us coming under intense bombardment. 
The country's Central Committee of Doctors tells CNN that with no doctors to tend them, the dead and injured are left to rot in their beds. And the Sudan Doctors Trade Union called the targeting of hospitals and the housing of military personnel there a clear breach of international humanitarian law, a charge both sides deny. Both military leaders now fighting for control were key allies in subverting the country's nascent democracy after the popular uprising in 2019, which deposed Sudan's longtime dictator, Omar al-Bashir, who now languishes in prison. The memories of those protests and the symbolic photo that became its emblem are slowly fading, as has the promised transition from military to democratic civilian rule. Hello, assalamu alaikum, al-Rais. But in an interview with CNN from inside Army HQ, the leader of Sudan's military tells me that the RSF militia is staging an attempted coup. I asked him why the Sudanese people should trust him, given his previous partnership with Commander Degen. General Burhan also committed to a return to civilian war. The leader of the Rapid Support Forces also told CNN this weekend that he wanted to ensure democratic rule. I don't want to be the leader of the army. There's a framework agreement between all the Sudanese stakeholders that should be adhered to. I don't want to lead anything. Neither general could tell us when the people of Sudan could expect this deadly fight to end. While many languish without water, food, electricity, and no way to bury their dead. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken has repeated his calls for calm, uh, joining other world leaders, but neither he nor those standing alongside him in these calls appear to have any way to deliver on them currently, and there really is no end in sight at the moment, Jake. All right, Nimal Bagger, thank you so much for that report. As always, new reaction is coming in after that grand jury decided not to indict those eight Akron, Ohio police officers who killed Jalen Walker last year. Alex Marquardt is in for Wolf Blitzer in this situation. Uh, Alex, uh, what's coming up? Well, hi there, Jake. Well, moments ago, we did hear from the police chief in Akron who said that the officers involved in this case will remain on administrative duty for the foreseeable future and that their identities will not be released due to what he called credible threats against them. Now, shortly, we expect to hear from members of Jalen Walker's family. That will be their first reaction to this news unfolding in Ohio today. We are expecting to hear from Walker's mother as well as his sister and the family's attorney. Now, this, as CNN is learning, that Jalen Walker Walker was shot by the Akron police 46 times during that traffic stop and car chase last June. So we'll have much more on this in the next hour right here in the Situation Room, Jake. All right. We'll be uh, tuning in in a few minutes, Alex. Thanks so much. Still ahead, the Philadelphia Eagles certainly showed him the money. Quarterback Jalen Hurts is making history. Stay with us. My beloved Philadelphia Eagles are making history in our sports league today. Eagles quarterback Jalen Hurts has signed a record-breaking five-year extension with the great city of Philadelphia. The deal is reportedly worth $255 million, or an average of $51 million a year, making the 24-year-old Jalen Hurts the highest-paid NFL player in the history of the sport. $179 million of the contract is guaranteed. 
meaning even if Hurts is hurt, he still gets paid. This year, he led the Eagles to the Super Bowl, where they were defeated by the Kansas City Chiefs. Hurts is now one of the highest-paid athletes in the world, behind LeBron James, Lionel Messi, and Cristiano Ronaldo. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead once you get your podcast. Just sitting there like a big slice of Lorenzo's pizza. Our coverage continue now with Alex Marquardt. He's in for Wolf Blitzer in a place right next door that I like to call the Situation Room. I'll see you tomorrow. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.